Well, what a great song to lead us into our time in God's Word today. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and uh, turn to Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. These are the words of Peter in his second sermon after Pentecost. He said, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Father, while we know this statement was originally made to the Jews who had horrifically crucified their own Messiah. And Peter was calling them to repent of that particular sin and return to the Lord and in order that the Lord would return. Lord, we know in principle that this passage applies to us as the church and our generation. And I believe that you're calling us, Lord, you're calling me, you're calling this church in this season to repent and return to you so that our sins would be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from your presence. Lord, we want that. We desire to be refreshed. We need to be revived. And so would you do that in your way, in your time, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to talk with you about revival. As you know, a few weeks ago I preached a message on the priority of prayer and I issued um, a call to pray and invited you to join in a special season of prayer for spiritual revival and renewal in our personal lives and in the life of our church. And since then I've been doing some reading and thinking and praying about the subject of revival, I thought it would be helpful and instructive, important for us to consider what the Bible says about revival. Because from my perspective, it seems that not many in conservative evangelical churches like ours talk much about revival these days, except for the periodic appeals from Christian leaders and organizations to pray for revival in our, what, our nation, in light of its continued moral decline. There's constant appeals within Christendom about praying for revival in America, which is good and right to, to pray and to pursue. But apart from a national revival, I think the concept of revival has been confused and abused by the church in recent years to the point that it has some negative connotations. I mean, if you come from a more traditional, particularly Baptist background, revivals are typically equated 
with an annual church event where a guest evangelist comes into town and preaches a series of hellfire and brimstone, fiery sermons in a stadium or a big tent, big tent meeting as they're often called. And, and really what these are is nothing more than evangelistic rally. It's, it's, it's targeting unbelievers and it's sharing the gospel and uh, calling sinners to repentance, which again is a good thing. If you come from a Pentecostal or charismatic background, revivals are often associated with large gatherings of people who supposedly experience supernatural signs and wonders, like speaking in tongues or getting slain in the spirit, getting knocked to the ground and shaking uncontrollably or laughing hysterically or jumping up and down or chanting or barking like a dog or even vomiting and all manner of wackiness, even things that I would consider borderline demonic. Is this really, should we really be attributing these things to the Spirit of God? This seems more like Satan and demons than than anything remotely close to what the Bible teaches about revival. But that's the, the Holy Ghost revival that we see people talking about and promoting. You may be familiar with some of these revivals in recent years. The, the Toronto Blessing was one in 1994 at the Vineyard Church that's there located near the Toronto airport. There was an, a, an outbreak of the Spirit as it was claimed and went on for months and um, the Toronto Blessing and that's where the kind of the, the laughing and the barking and all that kind of stuff came from and they said that this was all in evidence that the Spirit of God was, you know, baptizing us and anointing us. And back in 95, you may remember the Brownsville Revival, the Brownsville Assembly of God in Pensacola, Florida. And then maybe most recently, that uh, the one that made the news, probably more than any of these others, was the Lakeland Revival. Remember that one? There at the Ignited Church in Lakeland, Florida, there was a controversial evangelist named Todd Bentley who preached there for a number of months and healed people, and, um, and, and he had some pretty um, unorthodox methods of healing people. He would actually slap people across the face. He'd actually karate kick them to the floor, and uh, these were just some kind of crazy things that were being done in the, in the name of revival. And so these so-called outpourings of the Spirit marked by all sorts of weird, ecstatic, emotional and physical phenomenon have been clearly exposed as counterfeit revivals which tragically leave people worse off after they're all said and done. And uh, in, in many ways they're like Charles Finney ministry, Charles Finney ministry uh, back in the 17, 1800s when Charles Finney would come through a a region, particularly the, the, the counties in New York, part of the New York state at the time, and, and would use all sorts of um, emotional tactics and, and, and manipulative methods to get people to respond uh, by invitation to the gospel. And so all these people got saved uh, through his ministry, and then when an evangelist would come through town after him, it was like everybody sat there in a stupor because they all thought they were saved because they had had this emotional experience and so they called it the burned over area. That was not a compliment. 
And uh, some of these places where revivals have broken out are really, to, to this day, those churches are just kind of burned out areas. And so I say that because the concept of revival has often, too often, been misapplied by well-meaning traditional groups, again, equating it simply with an evangelistic rally, or it's been hijacked by the way-out Pentecostal groups, and so we deem it safer just to avoid the subject altogether. I'm not, I'm not going there because that's, I'm not sure what I think about that. I don't think we're that kind of church, and I definitely don't want to be involved in that kind of stuff. And so we, we just don't talk about revival because we're really not quite sure what it is. We're pretty sure that's not it, um, and we know that's not it, and so but, but do we know what it is? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about revival, which shouldn't be ignored and cannot be ignored. In fact, based on what the Bible teaches about revival, one could conclude that revival is a dominant theme in both the Old and New Testaments, from the numerous kings of Israel and Judah to the seven churches in Revelation and everywhere in between, God confronted the issue of spiritual backsliding and provided spiritual awakening. And this seems to be a constant cycle throughout both the Old and New Testaments. And so the scriptures are clear that God's people are perpetually in need of revival And so it's crucial for us to understand what it is so we can experience it personally and corporately because I think it is something that God desires for us to experience. And so this morning, I want to attempt to tackle this huge subject by answering three questions about revival. And I'm not sure how far we'll get this morning. But we'll, we'll go as far as we can with the time we have remaining. But these are the questions that I want to attempt to answer. Number one, what is the meaning of revival? What is the meaning of revival? Number two, what are the prerequisites or conditions for revival? And then thirdly, what are the true marks of revival? What are the true marks of revival? So, All that to say, I want to consider what we're actually asking for when we pray for revival. Have you ever thought about that? Okay, we're praying for revival, but am I really sure what I'm even asking for? What are we actually asking for when we pray for revival? And and how specifically should we expect God to answer our prayers for revival? In other words, what should we be looking for? What should we be expecting to happen? And so let's look at The first question, what is the meaning of revival? Now, before I give you a definition of revival, I want to take a look at some of the Old Testament references to revival, which will help us get an initial sense of the meaning of revival. And so hopefully you're ready to do a little Bible study this morning, and uh, we're going to kind of work our way through some passages in the Old Testament to begin with that I think are very important that you actually see with me. And so don't just necessarily sit back and wait for me to get to what else I'm going to say. Let's look at these uh, verses together and let's, let's let God's word speak to us um, before we actually uh, kind of give it our own definition. Uh, let's start in Psalm 71. 
Psalm 71. And by the way, the verses that we're going to look at are pretty much all the verses in the Old Testament that actually use the word revival or revive, at least in the New American Standard version, which is the inspired version. I'm just kidding. Um, but in the version I'm using, this is all the times that it's referenced. So Psalm 71, verse 17, O God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? So far, so good. I like that. And then verse 20, you have shown me many troubles and distresses, excuse me, you who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. I think one initial observation we can make there is that revival often comes after a time of trouble or distress in our personal lives or in the life of our church, we can expect God to graciously and mercifully revive our hearts and revive our church. I'm sure that many of you, particularly those of you who are old and gray, as the scripture says, don't get mad at me, I didn't say it, God did, right? Um, you can testify of seasons of revival and renewal that have come in your life over the years you've walked with Christ, when you may be gone through a dry spell, a time when, when things were just difficult and, and there was distresses and, and, and tribulations in your life and, and it feel like, felt like your love for the Lord had grown cold and, and, and then once God brought you through that fire, that fiery trial... There was a time of refreshment, a time of renewal, a time of revival. Psalm 80, Psalm 80, verse 17, Psalm 80, verse 17, this is a psalm of Asaph, who was the worship leader of Israel. Verse 17, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. I believe this is a reference to him and the nation of Israel and possibly Christ in the future. Verse 18, then we shall not turn back from you, revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord of God of hosts, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. So again, this idea of reviving, being revived, uh, implied in that is, is God restoring us and causing his face to shine upon us and to bless us. How about Psalm 85? Psalm 85 Verses 4 through 7, Psalm 85, verses 4 through 7, Restore us, O God, for our salvation, 
and caused your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? This was a a regular plea of the Israelites, particularly the sons of Korah, who were, again, part of the worship team for the nation of Israel. And uh, the nation perpetually walked away from the Lord. They worshiped the idols of the surrounding nations. They intermarried with the women of the foreign nations around them. God had called them to be set apart, to be separate, to be holy. But they compromised their holiness, and that made God mad. It hacked God off when his people were worldly. And so he would punish them. And so here, once again, the leaders, the worship leaders are saying, God, appealing to God, God, are you going to be angry at us forever? Are you going to be mad at, at our, our kids and our, and our grandkids? How about verse 6? Will you not yourself revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Again, after a season of sin, of backsliding, of falling away from the Lord, there is this plea for restoration to revive us, that we would once again rejoice in you, that God would restore the joy of our salvation, that he would show us his love. Again, Revival is God showing himself to us in in new and fresh ways, reminding us of his love and of his grace, of his mercy, of his forgiveness. And then turn to Psalm 119, which of all the Psalms has the most references to revival. And we're not sure who wrote Psalm 119, but whoever wrote it, had a passion for God and his word. And over and over and over and over again, he cries out to God for revival. Notice Psalm 119, verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your ways. Verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Verse 88, revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Verse 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Verse 149, Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. Revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. 154, plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Verse 156, great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. And so from Psalm 119 alone, we can conclude that revival should be the heart cry of every true child of God. This should be a part of our language, 
This should be something that is often included in our prayers as we communicate with God. Again, the Psalms are simply prayers to God. And so this is something that we should communicate with God, this desire, this cry, this plea for him to be merciful and loving and kind enough to revive us. How about one, Psalm 138? Psalm 138, verse 7. I love this. He says this, the psalmist is David. Psalm 138, verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work, works of your hands. And so as we'll see, the prayer for revival is a pleading with God to be faithful to his promises, to keep his promises to us. And to not forsake us, but to finish the work that he started in us. But it's particularly in those times of trouble where I think we're more prone to pray for revival, right? When everything's comfortable and cozy and cruising along just fine in our Christian life, we rarely pray for revival. It's in times of trouble, it's in times of distress, it's times of temptation, times of trial, times of persecution, times of depression, times of confusion, where we don't know which way to go or what to do or how we're going to get out of this situation and we can't see what lies ahead and we don't know what the future holds. These are times when we pray for revival. Psalm 143, verses 10 and 11. Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. Again, this is the plea of a humble servant. Lord, I want to do your will. There are those who are coming against me, who are trying to thwart me from doing your will. Would you lead me on level ground and for the sake of your name, O oh Lord, revive me. Listen, all of this talk of revival, this prayer for revival, this desire for revival, this hunger and thirst for revival, it's not about us. This is a foundational principle regarding what the Bible teaches about revival. It's not for the sake of us, it's for the sake of God. It's all about his name. It's all about his glory. It's all about his honor and fame. It's not so that we could get what we want. It's so that God could get what he wants. That's what this revival thing is all about. 
Look at Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, 15. Just a few more references to look at here. Isaiah 57, verse 15. This is a good one. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. This is what God says. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So here is the principle that we see throughout the scriptures that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to what? The humble. And so we will never experience revival in our lives if we're proud, if we're arrogant. Because proud, arrogant people don't think they need revival. There's no sense of helplessness and hopelessness. There's no sense of desperation. They're like, hey, I got this. No, no big deal. I can figure this out. I can do this. I can fix this. I can. But revival comes when you come to the end of yourself and say, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to do. I can't fix this. You need to do something. You need to intervene. And so we're already answering the second question a bit. The prerequisite for revival is humility. That we would be broken and contrite before the Lord. How about Hosea? Hosea chapter 6. Again, the, right after the book of Daniel, we fall off into the minor prophets there. And so Daniel and then Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, this is Hosea's response to God's rebuke of the nation who have been unfaithful to him. He calls to the the, the rest of the Israelites, he says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. It's a beautiful picture of revival, isn't it? The, the spring rains coming to water the earth after that cold, harsh winter where everything had died. The grass had died, the trees had died, or the leaves had died, and right, everything's dead, the flowers had died, and, and all of a sudden here comes the spring rain and everything starts to turn, to, to come alive again, right? And, and everything greens up and blossoms and blooms and and this is a beautiful picture of, of revival, which, which again, also often comes to us after a season where we've been disciplined by the Lord. The Lord has had to wound us, afflict us, 
to tear us to pieces, if you will, to shatter our lives, to, to teach us lessons that we wouldn't learn any other way. He wounds us, and he, but he does it for a purpose, so that he can bandage us. He tears us so he can heal us. And so Hosea, the prophet, calls or encourages the people and says, hey, listen, if we return to the Lord, he's going to revive us. Again, part of the prerequisite revival is you've got to return to the Lord, right? That's where it starts, is recognizing that I'm away from the Lord. I'm not where I need to be in my relationship with the Lord, which typically involves acknowledging sin, confessing sin, repenting of sin, right? Turning away from ourselves and our sin and turning back to the Lord. And the Bible promises that when we turn to the Lord, he will revive us. And then lastly, Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. Just keep going to the right there towards the New Testament and hopefully you'll stumble across Habakkuk. Just three chapters there. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. And by the way, the, the context of this short prophecy is um, God had told Habakkuk that he was going to use um, the Babylonians to punish the Israelites because the Israelites had wandered away from the war. They were in sin. They were in, in, involved in idolatry, immorality, just like they always had been. And once again, they were back into that sinful slump. And so, so God told Habakkuk, hey, I just want you to know that, that I'm sending the Babylonians to come destroy Israel and take them into captivity into Babylon. And Habakkuk is scratching his head going, God, I understand that we are in a bad place right now. We are not who we should be, but we are nowhere near as bad as the Babylonians. And you're going to use these wicked people to judge your people? I don't get that. And he really wrestled with that and he questioned God about that. But God promised Habakkuk that, hey, listen, after this time of discipline and judgment, I will deliver my people once again. And listen to how Habakkuk prayed here in Habakkuk chapter 3, just trying to process this, this message that he was to proclaim to the Israelites. He said, Lord, this is Habakkuk 3, 2, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. In other words, God, I understand that you have to pour out your wrath upon your work, that you are judging your work, your people, the nation of Israel. That was how God was working in the Old Testament. His kingdom was being built through the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, now his work is being accomplished through the church. And so he says, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of years, make it known in wrath. Remember, God, be, be merciful to us in the, midst, in the midst of your discipline. And as you know, it, God answered that prayer because they were revived through the scribe Ezra 
through the spiritual leader Zerubbabel, through Nehemiah, right? The temple was rebuilt and the walls were rebuilt. They were able to return to the land and God revived them. God restored them. Even though they were in Babylon, um, he exchanged their weeping for, for rejoicing and dancing and brought them back home and restored his work. And so with that as our background, again, we can begin to draw some conclusions about the meaning of revival. Uh, Noah Webster, who lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s, wrote the, the first American dictionary, right? Webster's Dictionary. Uh, and what, what most people don't understand is that he used the Bible as the foundation for a lot of his definitions. Some say he was the founder of Christian education. But according to Webster's Dictionary, here we go, ready? The word revive means to come or bring back to life or consciousness, to resuscitate, to come or bring back to a healthy, vigorous, or flourishing condition after a decline. And then he adds this, a, a stirring up of religious faith among those who have been indifferent. You can tell that guy was a churchman, right? And so a, a coming or bringing back to life, that's essentially what revival is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a coming back to life. Being restored to a healthy, vigorous, flourishing condition after a decline or after a season of being stirred up after a season of indifference or apathy. And so... From a biblical perspective, I think revival is when God, by his spirit, through his word, and we have to say that because it's very important how, where this all comes from, it's by his spirit and it's through his word. And so whatever we say is revival, better line up with scripture or it's not a revival. It's not a true revival, right? So it's God's spirit. That's kind of where it stops with the Pentecostals and the Charismatics. It's the spirit. And then they go off and do all sorts of unbiblical things. No, it's, it's, it's the Spirit of God through the Word of God. He regenerates or resuscitates those who are spiritually dead. That's unbelievers. And rejuvenates and reanimates those who have become spiritually dull or disobedient. So revival is when God, by His Spirit, through His Word, regenerates, resuscitates those who are spiritually dead, that would be unbelievers, and rejuvenates and reanimates those who have become spiritually dull or disobedient, that would be believers. Now, having said that, we need to understand that revival in God's Word primarily refers and applies to Believers. Re applies to God's people individually and corporately. And so this idea of revival being this year's evangelistic rally, while well-intended, I think that that's not a revival per se. What happens is a church, God revives a church, and one of the fruits of that revival is they're evangelistic and they reach out and God works a work in people's hearts in the community around them 
and people begin to get saved. And so again, the focus of revival, again, is on God's people more than unbelievers and even more than the nation. And so while I appreciate those who have called for prayer for a revival in America, in the country, the nation, what we should really be praying for is a revival in the churches. Because a revival in the churches will affect the nation. You know, what uh, Chuck Colson had that famous line, revival is not going to come on Air Force One. In other words, we Christians pray for revival that, oh, there will be a change in the leadership of our country, and the, and, and all, which is all well and good. But if there's going to be a revival, it's going to come through the church, not through the White House. It's going to start here in churches like this that begin to influence our sphere or, or, or impact our sphere of influence, right? And as churches impact their sphere of influence, people's lives begin to change and be transformed, with the gospel, not new laws or new, you know, uh, Supreme Court justices. And uh, again, all these things are, are good and, and, and we should pray for these things and pursue those things. It says that in First Timothy chapter 2, right? We should pray for our leaders and we pray that God would continue to grant us the freedom to, to worship him and to serve him and to pray. And... But it needs to start in the church. And so... Revival in God's word primarily refers to and applies to God's people individually and corporately. And so whenever there is a noticeable decline in a person's life or a, a, or a church's life in which they experience a season of complacency or stagnancy or lethargy, God in his sovereign grace and mercy may choose to reinvigorate and revitalize and refresh and restore and rekindle that person or that church. Revival is often referred to as a spiritual awakening. Why? Because God's people have fallen asleep and they need to be woke up. I love that song by Keith Green, who if there was ever a a man in our generation who was passionate for Christ and, and, and was a revivalist, if you will, somebody who pressed in hard against the Lord to send revival. And his song that he wrote is just profound, Asleep in the Light. Jesus rose from the dead and we can't even get out of bed. And so he's, his songs... His ministry was all about a spiritual awakening within the church among God's people who had fallen asleep. We're like the disciples in the garden. Jesus, sensing this great urgent moment that he, of all people, the Son of God, God of very God, in his humanness, felt the need to pray. His disciples didn't share that sense of urgency. They got drowsy and they fell asleep. And Jesus had to wake them up three times, not just once, not just twice, three times. He had to wake them up. 
And so revival is when the spiritual apathy of a person or church is replaced by by spiritual vitality or fervency, and they experience a renewed zeal and passion for God and a greater devotion to his work. For example, whenever a a Christian loses their hunger for the word or spends less time in their prayer closet or their, their love for Christ grows cold or they start to isolate themselves from other members of the body of Christ or their burden for the lost wanes, or they become increasingly worldly and less, and less committed to holiness, that's an indication that they are in need of revival. Or whenever a congregation, a, a church, experiences a, a leveling off of attendance or, or giving or a, a shortage of workers to serve in, in the various ministries within a church or, or, or a, a cliquishness or even a I might say a factiousness among its members uh, begins to take place or there's an indifference to local outreach or to global missions. That's an indication that that congregation, that church, is in need of revival. And so this definition of revival, this description of the need for revival is derived from the biblical narratives in both the Old and New Testaments. First of all, in the Old Testament, we see the never-ending pattern of spiritual declension and restoration of Israel. I mean, you know the history of Israel, right? The nation of of Israel. It's an up-and-down, back-and-forth cycle of deliverance. God delivers them. Woo-hoo! And then they disobey. And they're punished, God grants them repentance, and he restores them. And that happens over and over and over again. It's a vicious cycle in the Old Testament. An evil king would rise to power and lead the nation astray from God, and God would send a prophet to warn the people to repent, or he would judge them, and that's typically what happened. (laughs) They didn't repent, they wouldn't repent, and so he judged them. And then a righteous king would take over, the throne and initiate reforms and lead the people back to God and he would bless them with a renewed commitment to obey and honor him and they they would have a season of revival in the nation of Israel. Probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, not just the Old Testament, the entire Bible, probably the most often quoted verse when the subject of revival is brought up is what? Anybody know? Second Chronicles 7.14. Second Chronicles 7.14. Turn there, by the way. You need to see this if you're not familiar with where it is. I know you've heard this before. You, you may have even have prayed this before. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says, And my people who are called by my name, if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, I know that you know that this passage is often taken out of context, and applied to the need for revival in our nation, America, 
without any reference to what it meant and how it applied to its original audience, right? This is not necessarily our mail. This is Israel's mail. This was originally written to the nation of Israel, obviously, but there are at least two reasons why I believe this passage does not apply solely and exclusively to Israel, but also applies in principle to all believers and serves as the basis for all true revivals in all places and at all times. Why do I say that? Trying to be consistent in our hermeneutic, right? That, that Israel is, the nation of Israel is the nation of Israel and the church is the church and we have to be careful when we, you know, the, the church is not the new Israel. The church didn't replace Israel, right? There's a distinction between the two. So how can we apply this verse that was given specifically to the nation of Israel to us as the church? Well, first of all, God was not just addressing the Jews. Notice what he said here. And if my people, here he goes, here's the qualifying statement, who are called by my name. Granted, this is a reference to the Jews at the time. But this is also a term God used to describe his people in both Old and New Testaments. For example, in Acts chapter 15, 17, at the Jerusalem Council, when James and the rest of the church leaders were trying to figure out, what do we do with these Gentiles who are getting saved? What do what we do? Uh, they didn't know what to do. Gentiles getting saved? I thought that that this was all about us, the, the Jews, and, and, and God was expanding their mind to realize, hey, this is a new thing, this is the church, this is both Jews and Gentiles combined in this one new body, and so they were like, well, so what should we tell them? Should they abide by the same rules as the Jews and keep the law and the, the, the dietary restrictions and, you know, not worship idols or food that's, uh, you know, been served to idols and should they eat blood and, and things like that? So notice what it says, though, in Acts chapter 15, verse 17. After these things, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and will restore it. Again, I think this is a reference to the millennial kingdom here. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. And we know that in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, some of the labels for the nation of Israel are applied to the church. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. These were all terms that were used to describe the nation of Israel, particularly back at Mount Sinai. And so now the writer of Peter, well, Peter, I should say, Peter is applying those to the church so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the fact that we also could be referred to and are actually referred to as the people who are called by his name, Christians, 
little Christs, if you will. I think in principle this passage applies to us. Secondly, the New Testament encourages Christians to go to school on the Israelites. We're, we're to learn from their example. Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So if nothing else, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 is an example of revival. And what it looks like and what it takes to experience it. And so, you'll have to come back next week to see what that verse is all about in its context. But I think it will serve as a great example for us of what we should look for and what we should do in order to pursue revival. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it, it covers every subject in some way, shape, or form. Some subjects more detailed than others, but Lord, there's plenty here. We just got started to see what your word has to say about revival. And so would you continue to work in our hearts and in the heart of this church that you would revive us for your namesake. Lord, we're not seeking some experience for us so that we can say this or that happened or, or, or I felt this or that. Lord, this is all about you receiving what you deserve and that is glory and that is honor. And so, Lord, would you accomplish your work in your way, in your time. And as we wait upon you, that we would be broken and humble and dependent upon you through prayer, that you would sensitize our lives, Lord, to sin, give us a greater passion for holiness and a greater responsiveness to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.